Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Hot Air with me, Mike Borman, and the thoroughly affable Claude Von Stroke. And what are we talking about? Well, I think we can frame it as humour in music. Uh, what I like about Claude, or real name, Barclay Crenshaw, was that from the very beginning, what he did with Dirty Bird was kind of funny in all departments, like the artwork, the music itself, and of course, his own stupid made-up DJ name. If you just think about all those absurd conversations we've had in kitchens at after parties down the years, where you make up all these daft DJ names and float the most ludicrous concepts, well, the whole Dirty Bird thing is essentially one of those conversations lived out in reality. They've actually done it. Uh, and of course, and as you'll hear from the way Barclay answers his questions, there is some serious precision of thought behind this whole operation. It's way more than just a joke. But the best story with Barclay and Dirty Bird, I think, is definitely in the humour. So we start off with Barkley explaining a bit more about what he does with the Dirty Bird Festival and how it's about way more than just the music. It's gonna sound crazy, but our festival isn't reliant on the lineup. It's reliant on the brand and knowing what kind of time you're gonna have there and the experiential element. Mm. And it's based on, the tickets kind of sell because you know that it's gonna be fun outside of the music and that it's a place that you can like make friends. And it's a camping thing with like millions of games for adults. It's a very strange festival. <laughs> but the reason that people like it is not just because of the music. We only have one stage. And the names aren't that big. Like they're Good names. Everybody is good because I like, I won't book anybody I don't like, but that's another route that you can go. <laughs> and so did you feel from the beginning with Dirty Birds that you were merely facilitators for a wider experience, that it wasn't all about the music? It is all about the music, but because of the people that were involved, it became also about our ethos of like we're not better than you we just want to have fun we're not going to stick our nose up in the air we're not going to be like haters even though we are kind of haters on the music end of it like <laughs> it's very picky some people would say it's not but i am very picky on what gets on the label but uh I never want to discriminate against what kind of fans we have. Yeah. And, and at the beginning, when you created it, were you, were you reacting to something locally that you thought, that you thought was missing? Yeah, so I started as a... I started in hip-hop, listening to hip-hop, and then I uh, fell in love with actually jungle drum and bass and there was a strong jungle drum and bass scene in san francisco when i moved there which is pretty surprising to yeah, some people very strange uh little outpost of jungle in america was in san francisco and with these u.s producers yeah there was a whole bunch of them and they're just this one city very it's like san francisco toronto 
and the UK. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was really into that, but that very much like here was extremely close. So impossible to crack into. Very, very clicky. Like if you don't know these three people, you, you might as well just forget it. And so, so you I, being a white rapper wasn't even enough. <laughs> no. I tried to get into that click in San Francisco and I failed pretty much a few times. And uh, so all my friends went out to see house music. And even though they also liked drum and bass, but they also liked house, but I didn't like, I wasn't into house. But that was what we went to because that was what was around. But all the house music was really like groovy. It was actually kind of called West Coast House. Yeah, yeah. And it was like happy Miguel vocals. Mix. It was like Naked Music, Ohm Records. It had like singers, but it, but it was very glossy. And it was not my thing. It was more for there was a tech boom that it was kind of happening that time, and that that was kind of the fan base. Oh, okay. Uh, so it was like the fan base for the people who kind of had money. Posers. Well, I don't know if there were posers, and that there were definitely cool people into it, but the impression that I got was that it was kind of posers. <laughs> it was, it was nothing like. It is now. Like if I look back on it, it was very mild, but it was kind of like the silk shirt bottle service crowd. But when I look back on it, it was not really that bad compared to now, which is absolutely fucking insane. So you mean now level. in San Francisco? No, just now in general. In general, the bottle service thing went way over the ledge, and that was kind of like an precursor stage underground <laughs> bottle service <laughs> underground bottle service right <laughs> it wasn't that the music was trying to be that way it was that that was what the crowd was that it was drawing because it was kind of easy listening yeah so uh if you if you take the very odd equation of taking into account that we went to a very extremely hardcore drum and bass night every week called Eclectic, and we would go to see Naked Music and Miguel Miggs and like listen to house music, and we were all starting to just become house producers, you kind of get this middle, and, and you factor in this neighborhood that we lived in, which was a little lower hate, region of San Francisco you get this weirder and we were listening to German everything that was coming in was like German records like Playhouse, Perlon uh, those were the weird record like Low Soul and uh, yeah, Low Soul, Roman Flugel Low and Soul made some bonkers music. like very strange records that were the ones that we were gravitating towards. Ketamine music. And you get the drum and bass influence and the like very soulful house music influence. And then we just say, this is, we're going to do some combination of this that we like. 
that we actually want to go out to, and that's going to be the thing. And that I don't, that's the best way I can explain it. Yeah. So I mean, it was so it was a reaction of sorts, but also influenced by the stuff you were reacting right. against. Basically, but the other thing was that that all those guys had lived in San Francisco for a long time, but I had just come from Detroit, which was also a bit harder, more techno, mm. hard edge. So I kind of just refused to go that direct, that softer direction. But I also didn't want to make really hard music. Yeah. So the Dirty Bird imagery, that's something to do with you and your brother in church, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> when we were kids, we went to church every week and we were bored out of our minds. And so I created this little bird character and I would get the pencil and draw him on the, you know, the leaflet you get with the mass order of the things that are going to happen in mass oh oh so you weren't drawing it on the psalms book no 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 <laughs> but i would draw this bird in all kinds of totally ridiculous <laughs> like more and more outlandish scenarios like he was getting crucified or he was skiing <laughs> or doing karate against jesus I could just imagine the tension in the church. Yeah, and then my dad would show it to my dad would see it, and then just like clamp his hand on our legs, like shut up, because <laughs> he would always laugh. And so when then when then I was at the bar where the both Justin and Christian Martin bartended at the time, and the name Dirty Bird just kind of floated around, and then I drew the bird on the napkin, and then it just came together. <laughs> So then we have the name Claude Von Stroke. So right. I'm just picturing the scene. I'm assuming that it's you, Justin, and Christian pissed up thinking of stupid names. Yeah, it might have been. I don't actually know who was there. Right. Uh, it was definitely a few people like that. And then this girl and her sister, Nicole, and uh, kind of all people that lived in my neighborhood. I don't know if Justin was there. Maybe. But uh, it would have been likely. But there was like a group of people that lived right, right near me. Yeah. Like within two blocks. And we were all just messed up on the street corner. I remember the street <laughs> on corner. On the street corner? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you were born out of a street <laughs> corner. Wow. Yeah, so we were thinking of <laughs> fake European minimal techno DJ names. <laughs> and that was my name. And everybody else had one. But the girl, the very important part is that this girl, Nicole, remembered it. Right. Because <laughs> no, everyone was just like, whatever. And then her birthday party was the next week or something and so she thought it was the funniest thing ever and she I was DJing her birthday party for like 20 people max at this little place called the tunnel top and she made a flyer that said Nicole's birthday featuring Claude Von Stroke <laughs> that was it and I DJed as Claude Von Stroke and literally I had just finished the track Deep Throat maybe either the week before or the week after. And I just remember saying, oh, I'm, I'm not going to put Barclay Crenshaw on this. I'm going to put Club on Stroke. 
And that was the reason that record went out as Claude Von Stroke, because everybody was, thought it was so funny. And then that was it. Like, I couldn't, after, after that, it was over. Because it was a bit of a thing amongst you lot, because obviously Justin Martin had Jerry Boathouse. Well, that's like his email or something. Yeah. Well, yeah, but he said he played a couple of gigs as Jerry Boathouse, yeah, but Jerry someone Boathouse. gave him a check. It's Jerry Boat's house, so he, oh, thought, yeah. he thought, well, what can I do with that? That commercially, it was probably a bad idea. Uh, I was wondering whether yeah, other... He probably did do a couple of things. Were there any other stupid DJ names yeah. in the fraternity that I need to know about? I made a couple, like, secret records under a couple of the other names. One was Pedro de la Fedro. <laughs> and, and who what picture in your mind was that when that when was you, my spanish name <laughs> Pedro de la Fejo. and then Berto Bertolucci that's my italian name right so is Berto Bertolucci is, is he balding a no, bit no I don't know alright I, I thought you'd have pictures of these people no they're all, they're all me <laughs> I mean, there are some unbelievable DJ names out there that are actually real. Like, I used to work in music yeah. PR, and I created this whole Word document of each one I'd find. There, there's, I mean, and people doing it in all seriousness, like yeah. DJ G-Spot. It's <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. incredible. I mean, there's, there's one uh, what, from Chicago, um, Julius the Mad Thinker. <laughs> that's good. I like fuck? that. What the fuck? That, that, I think, I, that's memorable. It is. It is memorable. See, a lot of them are cheesy. Like if you're like DJ Dragonfly, or Ugh. no offense to DJ Dragonfly, but, but that's a person. Yeah. But it's not I crazy kinda, enough, is I it? I kind of like Julius the Mad Thinker. Yeah, yeah. The, I, t <laughs> I, I tell you, actually, I now remember the best one. Yeah. In the southwestern techno sort of free party scene. Yeah. Roland the Bastard. Ah, I've heard that name. <laughs> yeah. That's like a, somebody I've heard of. And that he's got this he's got this profile on Resident Advisor, uh -huh. which is it's just hilarious. It's so badly written. It's like it's a spoof, but it isn't. It really oh, is that not. badly written. Oh, really? Not only is it is he a bastard, he's inarticulate. Uh. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Roland the dyslexic. Oh man. <laughs> Don't be too mean. <laughs> but 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 yeah, I mean, uh, there's always something that's fascinated me about about the stupidity of DJ names. And the that. thing about DJ names is, it is fun to think of some weird name that's not your name. Yeah. But then, uh, like recently, I started another project, and I was like, oh, what DJ name can I think for this? Mm, hang on. And then every. <laughs> <laughs> my manager at the time and everyone else is like don't be an idiot you already have a dj name and it's your own fucking name <laughs> and, yeah and so i just went with barkley crenshaw yes i said like here it's not so wild but in america nobody's called barkley even yeah i, I took yeah. I, I i raised my eyebrows at that thinking yeah. what <laughs> now why now why your real name now I don't know. A slightly different sounds, and yeah. so you needed a name for it. Is it as simple as that? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. It's, I, did, I didn't want it to be confusing, and I didn't want to release that stuff under Claude Von Stroke. It would be way too confusing. 
Mm. Yeah. People don't actually, it doesn't go well when you do that, I don't think. If you completely flip the sound and then just keep the same name, rarely does that end up working. You're getting a bit more of an audience in America. Well, as before, mm. I, I think you quite liked the illusion that Claude von... It was, a, was it a useful commercial illusion that Claude von Stroke was a European name? Well, and it, something very interesting is that we couldn't get a distributor in America when yeah. I started Dirty Bird in 2005. Our distributor was out of Frankfurt, and it was the same distributor of the records that we were... That, we, that I was talking about before, like Playhouse, yeah, yeah. Perlon, the weird German records, that just happened to be the only place that would take us. Yeah. And they maybe heard like, oh, they're weird too. Or something was happening in the, in the first few records where they're like, yes, this is like exactly for us. We'll distribute this. And so all of our music was actually coming back from Germany. Yeah. With the fake <laughs> Claude Brilliant. Von Stroke name. So it had a very strange entrance into America. Like you would think that we're American label. We started out America. We got a great fan base right from the start in America. No one liked us. Yeah. We had no fans in America. <laughs> it was all in Europe. And we had to come back through Frankfurt to America for anyone to even give a shit. It was fascinating. In 2005, nobody liked that kind of music in America. Yeah. So what ended up happening is we came back through and then just kind of like eked it out and then eventually built up a fan base over 10 years so that by the end, because we all live in America, we it's just you end up playing way more shows in America. Like... No one wants to travel. Especially if you've got kids. 12 hours for every gig. Yeah. Right? So you end up playing LA, Detroit, SF, Miami, Detroit, Chicago. And your agent works it as well. Because yeah. so you, you don't want to be traveling. You end up playing that circuit a lot more than you end up playing London, Paris, yeah. Berlin, Munich, whatever. Just because you live there. Yeah. So over 10 years, we built up a massive fan base. And then, so then... It, I would say 2012, our audience flipped to be bigger over there than the over here. Results? I bet your missus was happy with that. Yeah. So, I mean, what am I going to say when I get paid 10 times more in America than in Europe? I'm going to be like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like if uh, Eats Everything gets paid 10 times more in London than he does in L.A., he's going to be like, Cool, that's where I fucking live. Yes. I don't have to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's just that there is kind of a a thing where people feel like Europe is like the leader and if you don't play Europe, then you're not really included in the equation. I'm aware of that. But fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's a pretty good attitude to espouse. Easy to say when you're so far into the business, though. But why right. not? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy to come over here, but it's not going to be all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you made Deep Throat, yeah. And I want to be careful to not be overanalyzing this yes. because a lot of stuff is overanalyzed like this. But it genuinely said something to me when it came out. Okay. Because I'd been, I'd been indoctrinated with all of this shite minimal uh, where you'd be thinking, oh, please just play Doppelwhipper, then I can go. Like th There was this one summer where I was just thinking, oh, my God, the music's so earnest. And then I heard Deep Thought, I thought, right, this guy's got an angle. He gets it. He's taking the piss. Now, is that how it went? Please tell me that's true. <laughs> and it wasn't just some accident. Ah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that's the wrong answer. Because this, that's getting edited out. <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. I wasn't over here when I made that record. Do you see what I'm saying? Like I was just in my house, in my bedroom, making the record. I didn't have any gigs. I was going out and seeing what I liked, and I was listening to a lot of music. But it's not like I was out listening to minimal techno every night and getting sick of it. Lucky you. <laughs> so I don't, I did not have that perspective, but I did have the perspective that music had gotten really dry. Yeah. And that there was an opportunity for me to make a fun record that wasn't going to be. I, my biggest, the person that I listened to, the one that I wanted to be like was Cashmere Green Velvet. Right. So Cool, but insane. If you listen to his early work, exactly. It's funny, but it's cool. Yeah. It's got humor, but it's not stupid. Yeah. Does that make more, sense? Yeah, more like a medical condition, like psychosis. Like, yeah. it, 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 uh, the, the, there's that insane intensity about yeah. some of what he's done. I mean, the record that I, that record was actually a concept record. Believe it or not, that was a concept the record. The Deep Throat was a concept. <laughs> well, I know it's a concept. I'm going to tell you the concept of the record, and you're going to be like, wow. The concept, it was a deconstructionist concept. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking hell. I was gonna I, where I was gonna take a sound uh, and then I was gonna deconstruct the sound into the each individual piece of the sound and then turn that sound into the beat. So if you listen to the yeah, song yeah. it goes uh, and then ooh, each ooh, one ooh, of the ooh, little ooh, pops ooh. yeah it goes the pops get farther and farther apart and then all of a sudden the pops are then the beat and that was I was trying to like deconstruct a sound and then turn it into the beat, and it, and that flip in the track is what makes the track work. Yeah. So as it turns out, that's actually quite a good answer. Like, <laughs> it wasn't one. It wasn't the one I was hoping for, but it's roughly on a par. It won't be edited out after all. <laughs> I mean, I'll even tell you the funniest thing is that when I came out, when not when I came out, like in our crew. Everybody was making tunes, and it was kind of like, can I make a better tune than you every week? Because we had a party already going like every yeah. week. 
and uh, that wasn't the big. That wasn't a big record. Like our my friends didn't think it was that great. And my friends didn't like Who's Afraid of Detroit. Like the big the records that became big for me were not the records that killed it at Dirty Bird Weekly. The Doesn't records surprise that, the records that killed it at Dirty Bird were like chimps. Like more obvious records that were just like yeah had sick bass lines and stuff like that. These were definitely more like I don't care. I'm making this record anyway. They're the B sides almost. I think you accidentally tapped into the sort of DC ten yeah. ketamine Ibiza market. Oh, with, you're gonna with, laugh, but I got a a MySpace message from Circle Loco. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Like that year. You that made said, it, boy. Who are you? <laughs> Do you want to come over here and play? And I was like, who are these guys? <laughs> That's great. And yeah. then I looked it up and I'm like, oh, they. I think they look like they have some cool people over there. Maybe I'll go and check it out. Yeah, that, I completely... that Ibiza sounds good. That looks yeah. like a good party. Yeah, but I completely fucked that appearance up so bad. But whatever. That's another story. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, let's tell it. I'm afraid no, I'm not no, going to let that no. go. Like you, I mean, you suffered a lot from nerves in the beginning, didn't you, when you were touring around Europe? I didn't know how to DJ properly. Like, I was learning on the job, which is hard to admit, but I would say 2005, I, was, I had great tunes, and I was kind of a shit mixer. And then I got better and better and better. And more confident every year. But that's not why I shit the bed at DC 10. It was because I got a, I got, it was like wires getting crossed in communication. I got a message in the booking that said, we want you to play the most underground set possible in the booking notes. Yeah. And my agent's like, you got to play really underground. Now where I'm from, Detroit, Michigan, that means hard ass techno. <laughs> <laughs> so oh no. I went into DC 10 at like 4.30 p.m. and fucking railed it. And they didn't like it. Yeah. They were like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> it was almost like, get the fuck out of here attitude. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, maybe I didn't play the right. I should have done my research. It's my fault. That's another thing you learn from DJing on the road. Like a lot of times and talking to people, that lesson was a good lesson for me. Mm. Like, hey, maybe I should actually find out what goes on here. Yeah. But and still, fuck them. <laughs> like, <laughs> I bet you wouldn't. Wait, yeah, fuck them now when you've got a whole career and a whole yeah. Dirty Bird crew to fall back on. But you don't fuck them then when that could be your living. Yeah, but well, I not didn't, deliberately. But I didn't even know that. Afterwards, I was still like, oh, okay, that wasn't like my best one. <laughs> and I wasn't, I was very belligerent. I was like, I talked to the promoter and he's like, we can't sustain this kind of energy. And I was like, so why'd you book me? <laughs> that was my attitude. That's brilliant. But I should have known better. I could have definitely dialed it down. But I didn't know. I love that. That's like the arm and... And the funny thing is that the crowd liked it. 
It was just the promoters that hated it. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, they that was, like, the ultra cool. Now, when Loco Dice would play there, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. A lot of the rest of the time, I just thought, I really want to like this, but I don't. And I think a lot of the Brits there were pretending. Now, there was some interesting innovation in the production because there were some quite odd sounds, but the DJing style yeah. was dull for the most part. I will say it's a very influential club and that oh, I, yeah. I don't necessarily... I definitely want to play there. And I actually have made some songs for that club, like Clapping Track, that I'm like, oh, this would work at DC10. But like you think when you're making a record, like, oh, where would this work? It's, I've made some records where I thought, oh, this would be a good DC-10 record. In the deep, at the deep throat time, let's say, yeah. your concept record, yeah, yeah. pretty much at the same time, Jesse Rose and Switch were coming out oh, yeah. with stuff which I found pretty funny. Now, was there a point where you started talking to them guys? Yes. In fact, I got... Uh, Jesse Rose called me immediately when he heard that Deep Throat. Right. And actually had a meeting with me when I came to Berlin. On, not on the trip where I was booked. I, I made a trip where I paid for the trip. So... I was kind of a go-getter, grafting it hard in the beginning. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to wait for everyone to book me. I have a record that's doing really well. I'm just going to go to Europe and make it happen. So I went to Europe myself, put together a tour myself, stringing together a whole bunch of little gigs. I think I even pretended that I was my own booking agent. I can't. <laughs> I'm not told. What was the name of the pseudonym? That's what I think it was, I I think it was Greg. Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I was like, well, fuck this. I'm not going to wait around. And, and you met Jesse. And Jesse Rose met me in Berlin. And his manager became my manager. Like, at that meeting, I think, pretty much. So him and Switch had already been signed with things like A-Sided. They or, had or... done A-Sided. Yeah, A-Sided was already out. And yeah. this is sick. And, yeah. So and we... did you heard them until oh, yeah. Jesse... Yeah. We had all those records. We had every Switch record, every Solid Groove record was a big record in San Francisco. Yeah. That sound was really influential. A, because... It was right in line with what we wanted to do, but B, they sounded better than every other record. <laughs> Up to then, it was just like our record shop carried Get Physical 2020, yeah. uh, all those weird German labels that I talked about a few times. And then all of a sudden, Dubsided just popped out and their like, mastering was louder. Their music was louder. Everything was like really upfront, 
in the sound, but it was still super funky. Yeah. It was before it got all super fidgety. Yeah, yeah. Then it all went... Uh, those first records were ridiculous. And imagine what it was like the first time that someone like me in British Cubland just hears something like that. And you literally just start laughing. It's like, what yeah. the... The records, like, stick out of the mix because they're, they're mixed and mastered, like, 5 dB louder than every yeah, other yeah. record in the sets. Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the mix, yeah, the not, they were not mixed and mastered like house. Like the, it sounded yeah. more like some sort of it's aggressive like jungle. DMB jungle st- yeah. mix down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. It, it was. It, it, it was absolutely absurd. Right. So, so quite quickly, you you, you formed a personal alliance with them, but not Dave. I didn't right. meet Dave Taylor in the beginning. Right. Just Jesse. Just Jesse. And I'm really good friends with Jesse still. Like, we're really good friends. And I never see Dave. I seen Dave. I talked to Dave a few times and I've had him over and we've had like several conversations, but not the same. Like, Jesse's like an actual friend that I would like. Yeah. I would let him babysit my kids. Yeah. 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 I like Jesse. Um, so, did. So when you were talking, like when you were talking with him, you're obviously talking a bit of shop about each other's music. That's my favorite thing about Jesse. You can just talk shop all day long. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun, but it's the kind of shop that makes you laugh. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and but were you were you actually talking about? stuff at a, at a higher level thinking that you were doing something different that was going to be bigger and was no. going to be influential we ne- no i never you were just doing about, your thing i never talked about my stuff like it was going to be better than anybody else yeah I, I to be honest i was just trying to crack into the sort of crack into the marketplace at all like yeah i wasn't thinking i was going to be better i was just trying to get some gigs and like get into the circuit and- I was very small in 2005 when I met him. Like nothing. I couldn't even, I didn't even have a booking agent in Europe. Well, you had Greg. <laughs> right. You know what? I didn't get a booking agent in Europe forever. Like we just used uh, the US company, Liaison. It was called Blue Collar at, the, at that time. And what did the Germans make of it? Because you because you're in quite a cool scene in Berlin and you're playing amusing music that's almost a bit of a send-up. How did it go down? Well, the thing is, is that that is just one record and I didn't play a right. bunch of goofy records. Yeah. I, that's kind of like a moment in the set where it yeah. gets light, but it's not, I wasn't all about like making a comedy set. Yeah. I played a, like serious records and fun records and dark records, techno, house, funky stuff. I, I was very eclectic. I always admired the Luciano's, Loco Dice, like guys that can just kind of like ride a vibe for the whole set. But I always said, that's just never going to be me. Yeah. I play tracks and I play this track and I play that track. And I'm like a producer head, so I'm all about producers. So like, I just string together the best possible music that I want to hear. And it's not always the big, slow, wavy, ocean, 
smooth peaks, build it up for 45 minutes thing. Sometimes it's just, this is this, and this is this. Yeah, <laughs> deal with That's it. That's more my style. I'm, I wish I was more, like so every once in a while I'll do a mix that's like that. And I'll be like, wow, that's, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> but it's not, it, I'm usually featuring like jams. Yeah. At the planning phase, I mean, you might not have a planning phase, but let's say you do. Um, when, when you have a particular track where you think, this is something else, just, do, you ever, do you ever get these moments where you think, right, I've got to play this track and it's going to have, but I can only make it go with another type of track? Do you think of it at such an advanced level or do you just roll with it? This is a funny answer maybe, but uh, there is a sense of self-preservation that happens where if I have like the biggest track ever, I probably won't play it next to one of my tracks. <laughs> <laughs> Just out of self-preservation. That, that's the ultimate commercial DJ right there. No, that's funny though, I know. It's so ridiculous. But, but I mean, one of the joys for me actually when I DJ is in create is in beforehand planning these wild card moments where I think, oh god, the look on their face when I play that. Like some stupid pop music track or something from 30 years ago. And actually most of my planning is finding a way to tee up this wild card. Uh, Do you ever think like that? No, because I don't really DJ like that. Yeah. I just kind of I just get all the stuff that I think is good into one folder and then I just go off of that. Yeah, yeah. And then I go back to the old folders to dig up something that will work. I, I have a really good memory for what will go with what from just listening to tons of music relentlessly. Yeah. And I kind of know what vibe will go with what vibe without planning it. But... uh I know what you mean. There's always a track that I want to play that's going to be impossible to play, and then I just play it anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can. Well, I don't know. Because I did it always. There was time, like, every, even when I came over in 2005, I would just break down into some jungle or something and, and be like, I'm just going to do this. Yeah. There's a lot to be said for it. Yeah. But even in this day and age, where computer DJing is acceptable and you can have your entire collection on a hard drive, so there's no excuse. Yeah. And yet, there aren't that many DJs who do that even now, even though you can actually sync the beats if you want. You can cross genre, you can cross era easier than ever, and still it isn't done that much. There's... It's a very uh, homogeneous genre. So mm. nobody wants to be like that guy. Yeah. Almost. Do you know what I mean? Unless it's already your thing. But, but. yeah, I don't know. There's, there's definitely a sense of like, I need to finish high in the resident advisor pool or something going on. I don't know what it is, but there is a thing like there's not a lot of risk taking. What sometimes there is. What locker dice? That was a that was a generalization. 
There are yeah, some yeah. awesome people but, that but take tons of risks. The kind of, you feel the technology could enable more of it. What Loco Dice said, he says, the problem is with house and techno, everybody's so scared. Yeah, he said. everybody is scared. Not everybody. Just a lot of people. Well, there, it, hmm. it's partly the, it's partly the, charm and bad thing about the music industry in general is that it's high schooly so the cool kids want to stay cool mm. and then there's always like some renegade person who gets kind of cool but they're never in like the really <laughs> cool click yes. that's where i feel like that's i i am in like i'm never gonna be the really cool guy but, but I'm might, okay with that. But you might be cheeky enough to the teachers to get in enough trouble to have a I bit of respect. I might be able to get booked at some nice parties <laughs> and, like, be tolerated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes. I'm never going to be, like, the coolest guy that does <laughs> yeah. the best drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And you meet these guys who you know they are renegades at heart. Like, they, are, they were the cool kids at school, and they are genuinely cool. And then you look at their creativity for the last 10 years and you just think, what the fuck is that? How can you sleep at night? I don't think like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. I, I think they can sleep with a pile of money under their mattress. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Maybe that's where I'm going wrong and that's why I'm scratching about as a journalist. And in fact, I'm not booked as a DJ. And, Maybe. And this, I don't know. <laughs> It's hard. The music industry has a lot of different variables to like success and failure. It's not completely obvious how it works. Mm. And it's not even completely obvious once you're more popular either. It's just to boil it down. This is a fact that no one will admit, but it's just the absolute rawest truth ever that I try to explain to people right when they get on Dirty Bird or whatever, or somebody that I think is talented, that I think I can help. And I'm like, the absolute bare facts are, the promoters don't give a fuck about you. You either sell 300 to 800 tickets, or you don't. Yep. The, you will get booked when you start selling 300 tickets. You're booked Getting a booking agent isn't going to sell 300 tickets. Getting a PR company to help you out isn't going to sell 300 tickets. You either sell tickets or you don't sell tickets. That decides whether you tour. And that's it. Yeah. It's just raw. <laughs> there are a few, few amazing promoters who will book the easy booking for six weeks and then have the weirdest guy on the face of the earth because yeah. they're so into it. Yeah. And lose their shirt. But that's not common. But but on the on the theme of do you sell tickets or not, of course you will admit that sometimes the reason why you sold tickets is because you were you you look like one of the cool kids yes. at school. You've been <laughs> well there is a absolute I mean look at that is from rock and hip hop before it. It's like, who does Led Zeppelin tap as the next Led Zeppelin? Who does yeah. uh, Lil Wayne tap as the next Lil Wayne? It's like, 
you get big, who's Jack White picking as like the next thing that he's going to do. It's like uh, you create a hierarchy in a family, so there's definitely, I'm the best, and I'm tapping these four guys and saying yeah. that they're also the best. Yeah. They maybe will sell half, but they're still in the group. Yeah. I mean, you used to write handwritten notes, didn't you, in the beginning? You pressed your own vinyl. What, yeah. What was on those notes? No, we didn't notes? press our own vinyl. We didn't have a vinyl factory, but we hand-stamped it and, like, wrote notes on it and stuff. Right. I, I was very, very on it. So what sort of notes did you write? Did you write anything? Well, I would, I would hand-mail every record to all of the most famous DJs in the world or the DJs that I liked. And we're talking thousands of dollars release, just hand-mailing to people's houses. Think about that. Do you think that DJs get records coming to their house anymore? No. Like individually wrapped? <laughs> it's unheard of. So, so Even can, then it was crazy. Can you remember any of Not in a record pool. Like Word yeah. and Sound used to make a big pack that you would get. Yeah, yeah. This is an individual vital coming to your home, like in Stuttgart or something, from San Francisco, International Post, with a handwritten note. I think you'll like this record, or maybe you won't. So can you remember anything particular you wrote? No. No? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> it was just the fact that you did it. And I did would it... sign them and be like, what's up? Or Would you I'm... sign it Claude Von Stroke? Yeah, of course. And do you reckon that it worked? It totally worked. It really worked. I mean, I can't say what worked for sure and what didn't, but I kept doing that for the first five releases, and then I changed it to CDs, and we found these crazy high-tech mailers. They were, like, super interesting. The way you opened them up, they are like origami. And I kept just hammering that until... And I think it worked. I think that people played those records. Yeah, damn right they did. And just look at how far Dirty Bird has come since then. But the point is, you don't even have to buy their music to be grateful that they're around. Every creative scene needs people like Barkley and Dirty Bird. Otherwise, we'd all get bored. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed hearing a take on things as much as I did. I'll catch you soon for some more hot air in a few weeks.